If you ask your, your friends and your neighbors what the greatest need in the world is, my guess is that you would get a few different responses, maybe world peace, a solution to poverty and hunger, and maybe something else. But if you ask those same friends and neighbors what their greatest need in their own lives is, and my guess is you'd get a completely different set of answers. Maybe a better job, maybe to feel more love, maybe to feel more supported in their daily life, maybe to be reunited with family they left behind in their home country, and the list goes on and on. But friends, what about you? What about you? If someone were to ask you what the greatest need in your own life is, well, what would you say? I'll take a moment to think about that question as you turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 33 and 34 today. And in these chapters, the people of Israel come to understand their greatest need. And my prayer is that this will help you see your greatest need as well. In our text, Israel comes to see that their greatest need is not relief from poverty or hunger. It is not peace. It is not comfort. Well, their greatest need is for the Lord himself. And friends, this is true of you all. The main idea of this passage and therefore this sermon is this. Your greatest need is God. That's it. It's simple. Your greatest need is God. I have three points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is knowing your greatest need. We're going to look at that from Exodus 33, 1 through 17. And the second is pursuing your greatest need. That's Exodus 33, 18 through 34, 28. And then third, fulfilling your greatest need. That'll be Exodus 34, 29 through 35. Uh, you can find that outline in the back of your bulletin and, and hopefully on the screen. So if you didn't get it all, uh, it's there for you. Uh, but first, knowing your greatest need. Uh, let's remember for a moment where we are in the book of Exodus. Now, last week, we saw Israel abandon the Lord and pursue idolatry with the golden calf. Now, despite everything that God had done for them up to this point in the book of Exodus, which had been quite a lot, they clearly did not see God as their greatest need. They didn't see obedience to him or listening to his word as, well, all that important. In response, well, God threatened to destroy Israel. Until, that is, until, as we saw last week, Moses intervened and begged the Lord to show compassion and mercy. Well, God did choose to show mercy, but chapter 32 closed with Moses asking the Lord to forgive Israel. He even offered himself in, in the place of Israel to secure their forgiveness. But the Lord refused Moses' offer. The Lord said he would not destroy the people of Israel, but all was not forgiven. Not all was reconciled between God and his people. All was not still well. And this sets the stage for our passage today. We're not going to be able to read all these two chapters, but we're going to read portions of it as we go through. So let's look first at Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. 
I will send an angel ahead of you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and did not put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. Well, there's wisdom to be found in the old proverb, you will not miss the water until the well runs dry. You will not miss the water until the well runs dry. Or to put it in a more modern way, you do not know what you have until it's gone. Well, it seems to be the case with Israel. They took the Lord for granted until he said that he would no longer be with them and accompany them on their journey. Now, the people's sin was so great that the Lord knew he might destroy them along the way if he went with them. They were a sinful people. That presented a big problem for his glorious presence being there with his people. But the Lord still promised something of his protection and provision. He said he would send an angel ahead of them, but not his presence. They would still get to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Perhaps they would not experience the full blessing of life with the Lord once they were there. But, again, God was still at least promising them safe passage to that good land overflowing with, with milk and honey and the place that they had set their hopes on. However, the fact that God would not go with them on this journey comes as devastating news to the people of Israel. Look at verses 4 through 6. They mourned in response to this message. And in response to God's command, they stripped themselves of their jewelry. Now, it's not entirely clear why God commanded the Israelites to take off their jewelry. Perhaps it was because this jewelry is what the people brought to Aaron to make the golden calf back in Exodus 32. But whatever the reason for it, it seems that their stripping themselves of their jewelry was a sign of repentance before the Lord. It was certainly a sign of, of obedience. It was a sign that they were mourning the loss of God's presence, that they were repentant before the Lord. Now, church, let's think about this situation that Israel faced here and ask yourself if you would respond like Israel if you were faced with a similar situation. I mean, yes, God, God tells them here that he's not going to go with them. But he's still promising that they're going to be safely brought into the promised land. They're still going to get to inherit this, this good land, the land overflowing with milk and honey. They might not have his presence, but it seemed like life was still going to be pretty good. It was going to be okay. Now, I might make a foolish decision in doing this, but I'm going to use my second genie in a bottle illustration in two weeks. So hopefully we have some Aladdin fans here among us. Now imagine for a moment that you're out walking on Umbrella Beach and you stumbled across a genie's bottle or lamp. You rub the bottle, out comes the genie, and he says he will grant you any three wishes you want. There is just one condition to these three wishes. He will only grant your wishes if you no longer have any relationship with God. No presence, 
No indwelling spirit, no prayer, no Bible, no church. But in exchange, he'll give you whatever you want. He'll give you the spouse and kids and family you want. Just not God. You'll get the community and and friendships you want. Just without the Lord. He'll have all the money and comfort and pleasure and power and respect you could desire. Just none of the riches of fellowship with the Lord. Friends, just ask yourself, how many of you would be tempted to say, well, I can live with that. No problem, Jeannie. I will take that deal. That sounds pretty good. Not as good as it could be, but I'll take it. Well, to Israel's credit, this is not a deal that they wanted to take because they had come to see that God himself was their greatest need. And friends, make no mistake, the greatest need of every human heart is reconciliation and relationship with the Lord. Now, we're not going to read these verses, but verses 7 through 11 give us a picture of just what a blessing it was for Israel to have the Lord's presence with them. Now, prior to the construction of the tabernacle, so the tabernacle has not been built yet, well, Moses set up another tent of meeting. We see in verse 7 that those who wanted to consult with the Lord could go to that tent, presumably to take their concerns to, to Moses. God would descend in a, in a cloud, in the glory cloud, on this tent to meet with Moses. And this was a sight so glorious that the people would all bow and worship whenever it happened. We see in verse 11 that Moses was permitted to enter the tent and speak to the Lord face to face as a friend. I mean, just reading this, we should be awestruck by the fact that God's spirit dwells within us and we can go and speak with the Lord anytime, day and night. But this is what happened. The people would bring their concerns to Moses. Moses would bring their concerns to the Lord. The Lord would descend to meet with Moses. And in fact, it seems likely that it is in this tent where Moses had this conversation with the Lord that we are about to study. And so when Israel was faced with the loss of the Lord's presence, well, Moses again went into the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people. Well, like Jesus continually does for us, friends, Moses interceded for the people with the Lord. So let's look at this conversation that Moses has with the Lord. Look at with me at Exodus 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you, so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, do not make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. 
In this interaction that Moses has with the Lord, he essentially begins by confessing his own need for the Lord. He complains that the Lord has called him to lead the people of Israel, but now he was going to have no one to go with him and, and guide him. Who was he going to come? Who was going to come with him? Moses knew that he could not fulfill this great task that he had been given by the Lord without the Lord. He needed the Lord. Well, is this not true of us all, church? For whatever task that the Lord has given us, whether great or small, we need the Lord with us. And so notice what Moses asked of the Lord in verse 13. He asked that he might know the Lord more. He wanted to know God's ways. This is what he needed. This is what the people needed. They did not need the abundance of the promised land. They needed the knowledge of the Lord. They did not need the abundance of the promised land. They needed the knowledge of the Lord. And so in response to this good and right request from Moses, well, God graciously said that he would indeed go with Moses and the people. But Moses was still not satisfied. He wanted to make sure. He asked that the Lord not even take him and the people from where they were if he would not go with them. He would prefer to stay in the wilderness at Mount Sinai where the Lord was dwelling on the mountain than go to the good promised land and if it meant that they didn't get the Lord. It'd be better to live in the middle of the desert with God than to live in the nicest place in the world without Him. God was present on the mountain and so Moses begged that God not take them away from the mountain if He would not go with them. God is the one they needed. And as we saw last week, Moses uh, again pleaded, not just for Israel's sake, but for the honor and the glory of the, the Lord himself. He said, how could it ever be said that Israel was God's chosen and dearly loved people if he was not with them? Moses was concerned with the glory of the Lord, that by his going with Israel, the name of the, the Lord would be magnified and, and glorified. So the Lord responded to Moses with amazing words of comfort and compassion. Let's look at verse 17. The Lord answered his prayer by affirming that Moses had indeed found his favor and that he knew Moses by name. Isn't that an amazing statement? Brothers and sisters, what is more amazing is this is what God has said of you too. If you are a Christian, this is what God has said of you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For he, God, chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Friends, that is the, the definition of a Christian, is that God knows you by name. He predestined you to be adopted as a son and daughter of the King through Jesus Christ. Christian, what a marvelous thing it is to be known and loved by the Lord. What security and comfort comes through relationship with the Lord. 
by having his spirit within you. Friends, this is your greatest need. This is the high point of existence. This is what you were created for. Your greatest need is for the Lord. So if that is true, we should all pursue our greatest need. The second point of the sermon, we should pursue that which is our greatest need, the Lord himself. So even after these wonderful words of comfort and compassion and grace from the Lord, well, again, Moses was still not satisfied. He still had one more request. Look at me with, at Exodus 33, starting in verse 18. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. For the Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Oh, what a beautiful request this is from Moses. Let me see your glory. Moses knew that his greatest need was for the Lord, and so he wanted more of the Lord. He wanted to see more of the Lord. He wanted to know more of the Lord. He wanted to know God more deeply and intimately than he already did. He wanted to pursue the Lord. He wanted to see the Lord in all of his beauty. Brothers and sisters, is this your heart's desire? To know the Lord of glory. To know the King of glory more deeply and more intimately. Friends, the truth is, it is not enough to simply know that you need God. It is not enough to simply know that you need God. You must come to know and love the one you need. Again, God graciously granted Moses' request, telling him he would make all of his goodness pass in front of Moses. Yet, yet even still, Moses would not be allowed to behold the fullness of God's glory. He could not see God's face because no mere man could see the face or the fullness of the holy God and live. Now, whatever it meant back in Exodus 33:11 that God spoke to Moses face to face, it did not mean that Moses could see the fullness of God's glory. But in response to Moses' request, God commanded Moses to come up the mountain, or he would indeed show Moses his glory and proclaim his name. And starting in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, we read what happened. Look with me at Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord is, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, 
forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Well, notice that God did not just pass Moses by here. He did not just give Moses a, a visual picture of his glory. He also spoke and proclaimed his name. And in doing so, God gave the most complete and most intimate description of God's character to be found anywhere in the entire Bible. It's one that's repeated over and over again. We saw it repeated even today in Psalm chapter 86. And you should see from this encounter that God's glory is directly connected to his name and his character. God's glory is directly connected to his name and his character. God revealed his glory by proclaiming his name. He revealed his glory by revealing who he is. God's glory is not something separate from his character or his word. And church, this is good news for you. Though you should not expect an experience like Moses on the mountain, at least in this life, you can behold the glory of the Lord. The same glorious truths about God that were revealed to Moses have been revealed to you. We're reading these same words that were spoken to Moses. We're reading them here this morning. And read through the whole Bible and you get to even see more of the glory of the Lord. More of His compassion. More of His grace. More of His faithful love and kindness. He has revealed his glory to you by revealing himself to you in his word. He has revealed his glory to you by the sending of his son, by revealing Jesus Christ to you in the word that was made flesh. Friends, you do not need a vision or a mystical mountaintop experience to behold God's glory. He has revealed it to you in his word. Friends, he speaks to you and proclaims who he is to you in his word. So brothers and sisters, if you truly believe God is your greatest need, you will, like Moses, desire to pursue him. You will desire to know him more intimately. To behold him in all of his glory. You will desire to come to his word that you might know him more. You'll desire to speak to him in prayer, to respond to him in prayer, to fellowship with him by his spirit. Christian, your primary goal in studying the Bible should not be to simply find some word of guidance for your life or some word of encouragement that speaks to you. Well, those things are fine and good. The Bible does give us those things. But your primary goal in studying the Word of God is to know God more. To see the glory that He has revealed to you. Friends, the Bible is not just a, a book of wisdom for life, but a revelation 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible is a revelation of the glory of God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the one who holds all things in his hand. He has revealed himself to you in his word. He has given you his word that you might know him more. Well, as he revealed his glory to Moses, God proclaimed that he is a God of great compassion and grace. Now, that is who he is. God is a God of compassion and grace. It is part of his character. But friends, his compassion and grace are in no ways a response to anything good and beautiful in us. No, look at Exodus 33, 19. God's compassion and grace They come as an act of his sovereign choice. He chose the nation of Israel not because of anything they had done. Not because they had loved him. Because he had loved them. And friends, if you are a Christian, God has chosen you not because of anything good in you. Because he sovereignly chose to love you. Because he predestined you to be adopted as a son or a daughter in Jesus Christ. And salvation is the sovereign choice and sovereign gift of our good God. He is sovereign in salvation and he chooses whom to save, whom to show compassion to, whom to show grace and mercy to. And this is good news because it is he who chooses who he will keep to the end is all that he has shown compassion and mercy to. Well, in the proclamation of his name, God also revealed that he is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He is a God who forgives iniquity and rebellion and sin. And yet somehow, at the same time, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Friends, how is it that God can both forgive sin and, and not leave the guilty unpunished? How could it be that God could forgive Israel of their rebellion with the golden calf and yet still be just and not leave the guilty unpunished? Well, friends, we actually do not get the full answer to that question in Exodus. But we do in Jesus Christ. God forgives not by simply forgetting sin or pretending it never existed. He forgives sin by the sending of his son, Jesus, who took the punishment for sin for all who had placed their faith in him. Listen to these words from Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. God presented Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God passed over the sins previously committed, not because he forgot them, but for those who had faith in his promise, he counted that faith as righteousness. Those who believed in the coming of a Messiah who would take the sins of the people, God passed over their sins because he knew Jesus was coming. Friends, God's mercy and compassion and forgiveness and favor can flow only to you through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin only comes 
through Jesus Christ. Well, in response to God's glorious revelation of himself, Moses bowed in worship, as does everyone who encounters the glory of the Lord anywhere in the pages of Scripture. And Moses asked one more time for the Lord to forgive Israel and to accept them as his own possession. And look at Exodus 34.10. The Lord responded, Look, I am making a covenant. In the presence of all your people, I will perform wonders that have never been done in the whole earth or in any nation. All the people you live among will see the Lord's work, for what I am doing with you is awe-inspiring. Well, Moses' intercession on behalf of the people secured their greatest need. God again promised to be with the people. He again renewed the covenant with Israel that they had so quickly broken. This is like the husband who agrees to, to take back and forgive his wife after she commits adultery. This was a renewal of the marital vows. It was a renewal of the relationship between God and his people. The Lord was forgiving and reestablishing a covenant relationship with his people, Israel. And from verses 11 through 28, we essentially just get a repetition, a repeating of God's laws and commands, the terms of the covenant that God had previously given to Israel back in Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus 24. I love how one commentator, I love what one commentator has to say about this. He writes this. So what did the Lord do when his law was broken? His character denigrated and his people shown to be unable, unfit and unwilling. The answer is that he reiterated what he is in his holiness and he repeated his word unchanged. He adjusted neither his holy character nor his holy law to suit the sinfulness and weakness of his people. In other words, the requirement of God's covenant remained unchanged. God would not accept the excuse that obedience was just too hard. If they had come to see the Lord as their greatest need, they had to show it in their obedience. Friends, if one of your friends came to you and told you that they had an urgent need to, to lose weight, it was their greatest need. Maybe they had gone to the doctor and gotten a very poor health report, and that was the doctor's advice to them. And yet that same friend did not make any changes in their diet. They did not uh, increase their exercise. You might doubt if that friend really saw a need to lose weight. Well, so it was with Israel. If they wanted to retain the presence of the Lord, they had to demonstrate that they saw the Lord as their greatest need. They had to obey. God is a jealous God, and he will not tolerate any evil or any rivals to his glory. Now, he made that clear back in Exodus 32. He made it clear here by repeating the terms of the covenant that his people must pursue him alone. So the Lord commanded that the people worship no idols and even avoid any practice that might tempt them to abandon the Lord and and worship idols. Look at Exodus 34 verses 15 and 16. Do not make a treaty with the inhabitants of the land or else when they prostitute themselves with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, They will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. Then you will take some of their daughters as brides for your sons. Their daughters will prostitute themselves with their gods and cause your sons to prostitute themselves with their gods. God didn't want his people to have 
any relationship with wickedness. God also commanded the people to consecrate all firstborn males of both the people and their animals to him. See that in verses 19 through 20. The Israelites were commanded again to leave their homes and appear before the Lord three times each year to celebrate a different festival to the Lord. But notice in verse 24 that the Lord promised that no one will covet your land when you are gone. God would protect their land from the enemies that surrounded them when they left their land to travel to travel for these three festivals. And so the, their enemies would not come and repossess the land while they were gone. Look at verse 21. God commanded the people to rest and observe the Sabbath, even during times of plowing and harvesting. Well, the point is that the people had to trust the Lord if they were to be devoted to the Lord. They would be tempted to prioritize other things like earning a living, providing food, the safety of, of their land. They had to trust that the Lord's ways were best, that resting on the Sabbath, traveling these three times a year was what the Lord commanded. It's what they should do. They had to trust that the Lord's ways are best. Is the same thing not true of us, church? Well, God has commanded Christians to gather together each week in corporate worship. But sometimes it is hard to believe that is what is best. It requires sacrifice and trust. You have to sacrifice time that you could be using to, to do other things like sleep or hang out with friends or to do chores and errands. You have to trust. A trust that God will give you the time to get other things done with the time you have left over. Trust that he will give you rest when you are tired and that you can find your rest in him. You have to trust that his word is what will nourish you when you are weak. As I know many of you, many of you who are here today work six days a week, sometimes more. It's a sacrifice to come to church each week. So it's such an encouragement to me when I see you here consistently, week after week. When I can see you here consistently most weeks, it's, a, it's an encouragement because it's a sign of devotion to the Lord. It's a sign that you desire to pursue Him more than anything else. It's a sign that you love the people of the church, that you love God's people and you want to encourage them. It's a sign that you see the Lord as your greatest need. Church, if you see the Lord as your greatest need, you will pursue him with your whole life. Christians are not just called to pursue the Lord when it's convenient. Just come to church every now and again when they think they might need a spiritual boost. And just open their Bibles occasionally when there's not really all that much else going on, when they don't have a full day and more important stuff. Or just choose to obey the commands that seem most important. Now, Christians are called to pursue the Lord as their greatest need and their greatest desire. And the good news of that is that is the Lord's way and the Lord's ways are best. The good news is that in devoting yourselves to him, that in devoting yourselves to the Lord, you will find your greatest fulfillment. It is in devoting yourself to the Lord that you will find your highest good. And this is what the Lord has created you for. He has created you to find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in Him alone. He has created you to worship Him, to delight in Him, to derive satisfaction and happiness and life in Him.
That takes us to the third and final point of the sermon. Fulfilling your greatest need. Look with me in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 29. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with him, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would not remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. And the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Well, we see in these verses that Moses was transformed as he beheld the glory of the Lord. The skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord and as a result of him being in the presence of the Lord. It's like Moses' face was one of those glow-in-the-dark stickers that absorbs the light when the light is on and then glows with a lesser light when the lights go off. And so as an act of God's grace, God allowed the people of Israel to see a small glimpse of his glory reflected in Moses' face. But as incredible as these verses are, they also testify to a sad reality. Because Israel was a, a stiff-necked people, they could not even steadily or continually look on this reflection of God's glory in Moses' face. It was too pure. It was too great. And so Moses had to put a veil over his face in the presence of the people. And thus the people were shielded or separated or veiled from that which they truly needed, which was the transforming power of the glory of God. That's what the people needed. They needed the transforming presence of the glory of God. They were a stiff-necked people, and so it was shielded. It was veiled from them. Well, this is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3 that we read earlier in the service. If you have your Bibles with you, turn back with me there. You can also find that text in your bulletin. I'm not going to reread these verses since we just read them. But I do want to point out a few things that we see in those verses that can help us understand what these strange and, and wonderful verses in Exodus have to do with us. Also notice in that text, notice in verses 7 and 9, that Paul writes that for as glorious as Moses' ministry was, and it was glorious. Like his face shone with the glory of the Lord. Nevertheless, it was a ministry that brought death, verse 7, and condemnation, verse 9. Now why was that true? It's because the law that Moses brought chiseled in letters on, letters on stones did not have the power to transform the hearts of the Israelites. The law that was chiseled on these stone tablets was good and righteous. But in the end, it brought judgment and condemnation because Israel could not obey it. 
The scene that played out with the golden calf that we looked at last week just played out over and over and over and over again in Israel's history. Because of their sinful natures and sinful hearts, the transforming glory of God was shielded from them. It was behind Moses' veil. It was high up on the mountain. It was behind the veil of the most holy place. The people of Israel could not fully come near that which they truly needed. But Paul writes in verses 8 through 11 that the new covenant in Jesus overflows with a greater glory than the old. Well, why is that? Because in the gospel, in Jesus himself, the veil is removed and we get to look at the very center of the glory of God. Paul writes in verses 14 and 16 that in Jesus, the veil is removed. When anyone turns to the Lord and places their faith in Jesus Christ, the veil is removed and we get to stare at the glory of God. When God invades someone's heart by his spirit and transforms them and makes them into a new creation, the veil is removed. They get to stare into the very center of the glory of God. They get to stare into the face of Jesus Christ. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 for a moment if you have your Bibles with us. This is what Paul writes. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells bodily. He has the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Him, we find the transforming power of the glory of God. Jesus' new covenant ministry is far more glorious than the ministry of Moses because Jesus, in His glory, has the power to transform us from the inside out. Jesus does something that the law could not. He transforms our hearts from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He makes us who are dead in our sins alive in Him. When Jesus saves you and gives you new birth by His Spirit, your sinful nature, the nature that cannot endure the transforming power of the glory of God, is removed. And you can be brought into the very presence of God. You are changed. And brothers and sisters, this is what you need. Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I said the main idea of this passage is your greatest need is God. I think that's a true statement. But I also think we could go a step further. I think we could say your greatest need is to be changed and transformed so you can be brought into the very presence of God. Your greatest need is to be changed and transformed so you can be brought into the very presence of God. Friends, this is not something that you can do on your own. You do not have the power within you to change yourselves, to make yourself worthy of being brought into the presence of God. This is something that only God can do. He has to show His compassion and His grace. He has to grant you His forgiveness. Only God by His Spirit can give you new birth. Only in Him can your sinful nature be crucified. Only by His power can you be given a new heart. Therefore, your greatest need is to behold God in all His glory. 
Your greatest need is to behold God in all of his glory and by that glory be changed. Look what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is spirit. As we behold the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ, we're transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, even under the glorious ministry of Jesus, we do not yet have a full picture of God's glory. We're looking with unveiled faces, but we're looking as in a mirror. And yet, it is as we see and behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ that we are transformed. I think sometimes when we hear a sermon or come to God's word, what we want is just a list of do's and don'ts. Just like, tell me something that like, I can do with my life or I should not do with my life. Give me some little practical nugget that I can and walk away with. We want something that we can just quickly apply to our lives and move on. And we find these things in Scripture. But that is not what you most need. It is not rules and laws that transform the heart. Nobody is one to the Lord by adding another regulation. Outward obedience gets no one to heaven. It is by beholding the glory of the Lord that you are transformed. Friends, often what you most need is simply to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You need to see Jesus in all his glory. Jesus in all his compassion. Jesus in all of his kindness. Jesus in all of his greatness. Jesus and all of his power. Jesus and all of his humble, humble service on your behalf. What you need in a sermon or in your Bible reading is to simply see Jesus more clearly. Friends, this is one of the reasons why Exodus is so wonderful, as is the whole Bible for that matter. But Exodus holds up God's glory in amazing ways for you to see. God showed his compassion in hearing and responding to Israel's suffering in Egypt. His great power was unmistakable as he rescued Israel and humiliated Egypt through his mighty signs and wonders. He led Israel by a cloud and showed that he could be trusted by caring and providing for his people in miraculous ways in the wilderness. He descended in power and glory and holiness on Mount Sinai. His voice thundered and the mountain shook as he gave his law and his holiness and his beauty was shown in the beauty of the tabernacle. And friends, we could go on and on with example after example of the ways that God's glory is displayed in the book of Exodus. And so, friends, I hope Exodus has helped you behold the glory of your triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit in new and deeper ways. Because as we behold the glory of the Lord, the greatness of the Lord, the kindness and compassion of the Lord, the faithful love of the Lord, that we are transformed. And church, one day you will not just get to look at the glory of the Lord as in a mirror dimly or reflected in the pages of Scripture, but you will get to see God face to face in the fullness of His beautiful glory 
This is the reward of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, God is what you need. God is enough. In any circumstance, in any situation, He is enough. He's given you what you need for this life. He has given you His Spirit. He has given you His Word. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And He has continued to give Himself to you for all eternity. We will spend an eternity never growing tired of beholding the glory of the Lord. Friends, I want to close by saying if what I'm talking about sounds a bit strange to you, if you're not exactly sure what it means to see the Lord as your greatest need, if the genie's offer from earlier in the sermon sounded pretty good to you, if you think pursuing the Lord with this level of devotion seems a bit crazy, if you're not sure what it is to have a transforming encounter with the glory of the Lord, well, maybe because you've never come to truly know the Lord at all. It may be that you've never truly encountered the glory of the Lord and been transformed. And this might be true even if you've gone your whole life thinking that you're a Christian. Now look, all Christians, all Christians have times in which their devotion to the Lord slackens. There are times when every Christian's affections for the Lord will wane. There are times when every Christian will take the Lord for granted. There are seasons when the glory of the Lord will feel veiled to you, even if you are a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you will feel that absence. And the desire of your heart should always be to want Him back, to regain your vision for the glory of the Lord. And friends, you should want this because you have had a transforming experience with it. God saved you. God has made you new. You know what it is like to see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and be changed. Those who have experienced that cannot be satisfied with anything less. Now, I don't know if this is a perfect definition But one definition that I've sometimes heard of Christians is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that Christians cannot take pleasure any longer in sin. You cannot take pleasure in sin. You cannot be satisfied with pursuing anything less than the Lord. So friends, if all this sounds strange to you, and you're not sure if you've ever had a transforming experience of God's glory, please come talk to me, or Pastor Ben, or another member of this church after this sermon. We'd love to talk to you more about how you can know this God of glory. We would love to direct you to the one who is your greatest need. You may not yet know the one who is your greatest need, but you can. The message of salvation is open to all, all who repent of their sins, place their faith in Jesus Christ, will be changed. They are given the Spirit of God and have His presence with them for all eternity. Friends, this is your greatest need, and that greatest need can be satisfied even today. Let's pray.